Don't worry, I'm not going to dance or sing or... Who said that? Well, it's good to be back with you. Last week, uh, you were uh, treated to the Word of God. Micah preached. I watched it last night and very much enjoyed the message that he gave. Micah, where are you? You're hiding over here somewhere? Ah, there you're hiding. Thank you for opening the Word. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The message about endurance in the race. And, you know, as I was watching this video about Doug and Nisi Cannon. Doug Cannon is a man who is a good example of one who is enduring in the race. That guy is older than Father Time, (laughs) but he doesn't look like it. But he has been in China for four decades, I think it is, basically. And he has run the race with endurance. He continues. There have been many times along the way when there would have been opportunity to to drop out of the race, as it were, and, and uh, he never, never gave in. So he's just a good living example of Hebrews 12. Last month in the uh, e-bulletin, I, I wrote a little book review about a, a book and commended it to you for this summer's reading, and it's called The Man Christ Jesus. It's an excellent little book. It's uh, not very long, but it's very densely packed, and it deals with the topic of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it's an important book because that's a topic that we don't think about very often, and there is much that we can gather and glean from a study of the humanity of Christ, and in particular about how we can and must emulate Him in His spiritual walk, in our own walk with Christ. And uh, we've been meeting in my home a couple times a month with a group of young professionals, and we have been reading and discussing that book together, and we've had some really stimulating times of discussion that have been very spiritually rewarding and edifying. You know, when you come to the topic of the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, uh, you run into a conundrum, into a mystery. I mean, how is it that the God-man is both fully God and fully human. That's a mystery, a mystery of the Godhead, as a matter of fact, and and it's something that we cannot fully grasp. But we certainly can see it and we can understand a a portion of it, and, and we can do that by a close and careful reading of the Scriptures. Beloved, the the finite can never encompass the infinite. And and so we can never fully and completely understand any of the doctrines of our God. But we nonetheless need to study hard. And yet we need to be willing to acknowledge there are certain limits to our knowledge. And this morning's topic brings us to that same basic place. It's an area of theology that is every bit as mysterious, every bit as mystifying, every bit as confounding as the Incarnation, and that is the mystery of sovereignty and salvation. The mystery of sovereignty and salvation. What I'm talking about is is God's electing love and man's moral responsibility to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. And it brings us face to face with this really profound mystery. Now Matthew has been building his case for us in presenting Jesus as Messiah. The first four chapters of his gospel, he certainly introduces Jesus beginning with his messianic lineage and then goes on to, to speak about his moral qualifications to serve as the Messiah of Israel. That's really chapters 1 through 4. Beginning in chapter 5 and running through chapter 7, so 5, 6, and 7, Matthew gives us the, the most extended treatment of the message, if I can say it that way, of Jesus that appear really in any of the Gospels. You have the longest teaching section from Jesus located there in Matthew's Gospel chapters 5 through 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew follows in this presentation with the miracles of Jesus, chapters 8 and 9, and he presents nine separate miracles that identify and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is indeed the Messiah long promised by the prophets. And it's at that point that the gospel begins to turn a corner, beginning in chapter 10, when when Matthew predicts that not only will Israel reject him as Messiah, but they will persecute his followers, his disciples. And that rejection is startling, really. It's a rejection that comes in the face of the overwhelming evidence that has been presented to the nation. The identity of Jesus as Messiah is clear. It is compelling. And yet the nation will not embrace him. Will not embrace him. And it's surprising that they won't embrace him. And maybe for us, you know, we're 2,000 years removed and perhaps a little jaded by it all. But it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking that the nation of Israel would refuse their Messiah in the face of such clear and compelling evidence. In fact, it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. And that's exactly what Matthew presents to us in chapter 11. Beginning in verse 16 and and running through the end of that chapter. And what's even more shocking than that is is that Matthew presents Jesus here as as pointing out this this incredible reality. And that is that that if the the evidence of his Messiahship had had been presented in the various pagan cities of that part of the world, including the wicked city of Sodom... If they'd have seen, if they'd have experienced what Israel has experienced, Jesus says they would have repented and believed. And yet the people of Israel remain hard-hearted. They will not believe. Why? Why will they not believe? How is it that in the face of this kind of evidence, they remain so hard-hearted? The passage before us this morning helps answer that question. It helps answer that question. How can it be that they would turn their backs on Jesus? It takes us 
to the topic of sovereignty and salvation. And it's a difficult topic. It's a difficult topic. It's a topic that is, that is regularly subjected to various philosophical speculations, to emotionalism, to, to mischaracterizations, to, to straw men arguments. People line up on both sides and, and they create this elaborate superstructure. It's been so divisive in the history of the church that, that some say it should be avoided altogether. It's the kind of topic you should not talk about. If, if, you want to, if you want to split a church, they say, begin to talk about election and, and predestination and the sovereignty of God. And, and boy, you'll get some people riled up. So they say, don't talk about those things. Just talk about what we agree about. But the problem with, with that is, is, is that Jesus and, and the writers of both the Old and the New Testament they, they didn't avoid the topic. In fact, you, you can't read your Bible and avoid the topic. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It is taught and it is believed by the people of God from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I didn't go looking for it this morning. It came looking for me. That's one of the advantages, by the way, of preaching expositorily through the Scriptures. You don't get to pick and choose what you want to talk about. And this morning we're talking about sovereignty and salvation. So buckle your seatbelts. There's no way we're going to answer all your questions. In fact, when we're done, we may leave more questions with you than you had when we started. And that's okay, too. That's okay, too. So I want to look at the passage with you this morning. It's verses 25 to 30. And as we do that, I want to draw out three principles. Three principles that I believe are found here in this passage regarding sovereignty and salvation so that we might think righteous or rightly about this glorious topic. We might think rightly about this glorious topic. So three principles. The first one is this. God's sovereignty is a doctrine to rejoice in, not recoil from. It is a doctrine to rejoice in, not recoil from. That means it's not something we should run away from in horror. It's something that we need to understand to the best we can by our study of the Scriptures, and we need to rejoice in it because it's an expression of, the person and character of God. It begins this way in verse 25. At that time. At what time? At the time in which Jesus has just pronounced this most incredible uh, uh, statement of condemnation upon the cities of Galilee who have observed his public ministry now for more than a year, have been the the recipients of the most incredible displays of miraculous kingdom power, and yet have steadfastly refused. Refused in the face of the evidence. Evidence that is so compelling that if the pagans had received similar evidence, they would have believed that kind of evidence. In the face of that, at that time, Jesus said, 
I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. And in the face of his rejection, in the face of the hard-heartedness of Galilean unbelief, Jesus prays to his Father. Now, often when when people pray, they they reveal some of the deepest hopes and desires and and longings of their hearts. The, The things they believe deep down tend to be voiced in prayer. And notice what Jesus prays here. As he he gives voice to some of the deepest things in his own heart, in in the face of his rejection, he praises God. He praises God. Why? Why Why does this bring praise from his lips? When when nobody will believe. When he knows that not only will they just reject him, but they're going to be gone beyond simply ignoring him to the place where they're going to crucify him. And yet he praises God. He praises God. Why? The answer, I believe, is, is found first in the twin titles that he uses in, in his address to God. Notice them. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Those are your twin titles. Father and Lord. Father and Lord. Father connotes the idea of intimacy. He is intimate, and he's intimate at the level where he calls the creator of the universe his Father. There's a level of intimacy there with him. And then there's a, there's a clear statement of God's Sweeping sovereignty, Lord of heaven and earth. There's no better way to express the sovereignty of God than than by that title. And taken together, what, what it signifies to us is that Jesus is in such close fellowship with the one who rules over all things, even Jewish unbelief, that in the and in the face of that unbelief, he finds reason to praise God. He finds reason to praise God, the one who does all things well. Who does all things well. Now specifically, what does he praise God for? Take a look at the verse. I praise you, sovereign one, because you have hidden these things. You have hidden these things. Things. What things? The miracles. Look up to verse 20. He began to denounce the seas in which most of his miracles were done. That these things that, that Jesus is, is referring to here are his miracles, his, his messianic credentials. And Jesus is praising God, His Father, the Sovereign One, because He has hidden 
the significance of Jesus' miracles from one group of people and revealed it to another. I praise you. I praise you because these do not believe. You have hidden it from them. And I praise you because these do believe and you have revealed it to them. Two groups of individuals. The the wise and intelligent, you see it? And the infants. The wise and intelligent and the infants. Now, now in the context here, I, I think these are not actual physical realities. So it's not like guys with gray beards and babies. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people's orientation towards him. Those who, who consider themselves wise and intelligent, those who understand that they are like, they are like infants. They're humble because they, they recognize they're helpless in the face of God. Who are the wise and intelligent? I think in context, you, ha- you have to see it as, as this generation, verse 16. To what can I compare this or will I compare this generation? These are the wise and intelligent. It is, it is a reference to the, to the nation. To the, to the multitudes, to those who have, who have witnessed his miracles and yet have refused his message. To those who are satisfied, self-satisfied. They have an, they have an elaborate and, and, and um, spiritually intricate religion in which they participate And they are quite satisfied with it. It's everything they want. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up, right? I I like this. It works. It's the right way to approach God. That's the group. That's the masses. That's the multitude. That's the nation. This generation. And by the way, all subsequent generations among the Jewish people up until this day. In contrast, there are, there are a few. The infants. These are the ones who, who humbly recognize their need for the Savior. Who are they? Well, in verse 19, we get a clue. They are the tax gatherers or tax collectors and sinners, right? Those who are outside the system. Those who are not good enough. Those who recognize how desperate they are. Those who Jesus had described earlier, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4 as the poor in spirit. Those who, who mourned in repentance. It is to them that God reveals the meaning of Jesus' miracles. But it is to the self-satisfied. He completely seals them off. This understanding, by the way, as I say, it runs all through the Scriptures. For example, over in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says essentially the same thing. 
Part of the problem of the church at Corinth is they had become really puffed up. They were really impressed with their own spiritual acumen, their, their wisdom. And Paul says, hey, fools. Verse 26, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing... It's just another way of saying by his sovereign election, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have concealed, you have hidden the understanding of who Jesus is from those who are self-satisfied in their own homemade religion. And you have revealed it to those who are humble, those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourning after their sin, those who recognize they have nothing to offer God to impress Him in any way. Their only cry can be, God, be merciful to me. The sinner. Matthew 11, verse 26. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. (laughs) Wow. Jesus is praising God for his sovereign election. And in it is a, an acknowledgement here of the, of the concealing and the revealing. And, and he says, it, it was done according to your good pleasure, God. Do you see it? Verse 26. For, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. God has done it for his good pleasure. And Jesus says here, you know what? What pleases God the Father pleases me. It pleases me. So I say, sovereignty is a a doctrine to rejoice in, not to recoil from. Jesus rejoices in the sovereignty of God. Now, when we think about the mystery here, the mystery of concealing or, or hiding from one group of people and, and revealing to another group of people, we, we need to be very careful to avoid certain errors, certain philosophical speculations. We need to, we need to be careful not to go beyond the text. First, we need to guard against the error of assuming that that what we have are two neutral groups of individuals whom God arbitrarily 
conceals redemption from one and reveals it to another. We don't have neutral human beings. There is no such thing as a neutral human being. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all corrupt. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become useless. There is, a, there is a pool of humanity, but it is a cesspool of humanity. And you and I are part of it. We are absolutely part of it. Listen, God does not create unbelief in the heart of a sinner. The sinner's heart is filled with unbelief. Filled with it. It's already there. When God conceals the saving identity of Christ, what He does is is to give to the sinner the justice they deserve. The justice they deserve. They hate God. We hated God. Scriptural message is very, very clear on this. God gives them the justice they deserve. In revealing Christ, God gives mercy. He gives mercy. Not to people who deserve it. To those who don't. To those who don't. But in neither case is God unjust. Some get justice. Some get non-justice, if I can say it that way. Nobody gets injustice. Nobody gets injustice. In God's secret counsel, His good pleasure, He chooses to open the eyes of some individuals to change their heart's affections and to and to fill them with a love for Jesus Christ. And it's all according to His sovereign plan. And Jesus rejoices in it. And beloved, so should we. So should we. This is a doctrine that should, should elicit praise and glory from the lips of God's people. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you're sitting here and you know Jesus Christ in a saving way. You you know Him because God drew you to Him. He poured out His mercy and grace upon you. You have nothing to boast in, save in Christ alone. It's what motivates the worship of God's people. It's striking to me here this particular passage that that Jesus can can simultaneously denounce the cities of Galilee who have refused to repent in the face of the clear and compelling evidence and at the same time praise God who sovereignly chose 
to conceal it from them and to reveal it to others. This is the gloriously difficult doctrine of sovereignty and salvation. And we need to rejoice in it too. But it doesn't end there. Verse 27. Jesus goes on to say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus' rejoicing goes, goes further here because He says that, that God has, has given over to the Son the, the ability, the, the sovereign ability to choose who will believe and who will not. It's been delegated to him. Listen, as, as Messiah, he is the unique identifier and revealer of the Father. He knows the Father. He knows the Father intimately. The Father knows him intimately. And Jesus says, listen. You will come to know the Father as I know the Father, if I will it to be so. If I will it to be so. You will receive the knowledge of the Father according to my will. Beloved, that's a statement of sovereignty. There's no way around it. I think this is why Peter, after Pentecost, he says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, Jesus not only accomplished redemption for humanity on the cross, but Jesus also decides who will be the beneficiaries of the redemption he has accomplished. Salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord. God saves. And may God help us to learn to rejoice like Jesus rejoices in this difficult and glorious doctrine. May God help us. And may God help us to balance this truth with a heart of compassion for those who do not believe. This doctrine should not make us grow smug or proud. It should do nothing but crush us and recognize any good is of God. God's sovereignty is a doctrine to rejoice in, not recoil from. Second principle, a person will never come to Jesus until they tire of their own self-effort. We're kind of moving from sovereignty to salvation here. We're flipping to the human side. And the principle is pretty, pretty clear, I think, in verse 28. A person will never come to Jesus until they tire of their own self-effort. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God long ago had promised rest to his ancient people. Not just physical rest, 
but spiritual rest as well. But the nation had, had continually rejected him throughout their history. They had never lived in obedience under the Mosaic Covenant. And so they never received the rest that had been promised them. Ultimately, their rebellion grew to such a proportion and magnitude that, that God judged them and evicted them from their land, their ancient homeland, in the Babylonian captivity of the 6th century. God, in His mercy, brought them back into their land. And yet they still had no rest. It's been five centuries removed now. The nation is still not at rest. And Jesus speaks to them. Their relationship with God, by the way, had had deteriorated by this time into a a full-blown works-based religion. They were good at it. If you're looking for for a religious system, they had it to the T. It covered every single minutiae, every detail, every aspect of life. It was all bolted down. If you like rules, you like laws, give me a checklist. They had it. They had it to the mat. They had over 600 little things you could check off. You're doing okay with God today. Series of hoops you have to jump through. You jump high enough, often enough. They tell you you'll be okay. It was an oppressive system. Chapter 15, for example, Jesus confronting them over this. And he confronts the Pharisees, by the way. And, and his hostilities are, are greatest against the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the experts at the hoop system. They made them up. They're like a hoop factory. They made up religious things to do. Chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus, you know, they're getting on him because he doesn't ceremonially wash his hands in the right way and as often as they want him washed. And and he answers and he says to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? Listen, your traditions, your rules, your regulations, the things that one must do in order to be acceptable before God in your your system are, are so burdensome that they are now to the place where they actually contradict the clear commandments of God. Clear commandments. Chapter 23, verse 3. Excuse me, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. This is talking about a religious system all tied up into a great, big, gigantic package. And they'll, they'll stick it on your back and carry it around with you, hoping it'll make you right with God. And people are tired. They're tired. You know what? It, it takes a lot of effort to, to maintain a, a self-made religion, a works-based religion. It's a lot of work. To be a legalist is, is hard work. 
You've got all this stuff you've got to do. They'd externalized the relationship with God. It had become oppressive to the people. And Jesus, in his public preaching, had, had repeatedly confronted this. And, and yet they would not repent. They would not change. Why? Why will people stay under a system that's so oppressive? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? I think the answer is that, is that people, actually, this is, this is the crazy part, is we, people, we like it in a, in a perverse kind of way. We, we like it. We like a system of checklists. We, we like a, a religion of externals. And the reason we like it is because we can maintain an illusion that we're good, that we're good people, that God will be pleased with us in our, in our own self-effort. We don't have to humble our heart. So we can, we can get the glory. I read my Bible, you know, twice a day, and I pray, and I, and I fast, and I tithe everything. You know, I'm, look at me. All the glory, we can hog it for ourselves. Just like their fathers before them, they turned away. Give me that old-time religion, the one where I get to do all that stuff, and God gets to tell me how good I am. Notice how Jesus responds this kind of hard-heartedness. He begins to call individuals out. Verse 28, come to me. Come to me. Everybody come to me? No, no. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Basically, the idea is, is those of you who have figured it out, those of you who are tired, those of you who, who have gone through the motions long enough and know it doesn't work, You're tired of lying to yourself. You're tired of putting on a front for everybody else so that they'll think you're religious. They'll think you're a good person. When you've like had enough of messing around with God, come. Come to me. Specifically here, he's he's calling people out of the nation. Listen, the the offer of the kingdom has been close at hand, hasn't it? That's been the recurrent theme right up to this place. The kingdom is close at hand. Not anymore. It's being withdrawn. The offer is being withdrawn from the nation. No longer is the kingdom going to be available to the nation as a whole. Now it is an individual call to people to humble their heart and, and to come to Jesus and embrace Him in faith. And Jesus will begin in the sovereign purposes of God to construct a new people of God called the church. Ultimately drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. Jesus is still calling this morning. He's still calling infants this morning. 
Those sitting here this morning who recognize, I'm tired. I am exhausted. I have grown weary with trying to live the Christian life. I'm done. I'm done. I've been faking it, and it's not working. I'm not going to put on airs anymore. I'm not going to. I'm not going to pretend that everything's okay inside because it's not. Tired to try to be good enough, religious enough, devoted enough for God to accept me. I'm tired of of doing community volunteer kind of activities. So that people will think I'm a good guy. Give me a couple of attaboys. Listen, if you're on the treadmill, and that's what it is, a treadmill, and you're, you're going to work your way to heaven, Let me ask you a question. How do you ever know when you've done enough? Hmm? How do you ever know? I mean, maybe it was like one more prayer you needed to offer. One more Little League game you needed to coach. One more dollar you needed to give away. One more church service shouldn't have missed. How do you ever know? It's madness. It's madness. You never can be good enough. Listen, God's standard is perfection. That's a, that's a crazy thing about this. God's standard is perfection. You shall be perfect as my Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. And we're all ready to admit it, right? No one is perfect. So why get on that treadmill? There's one who's perfect. The man Christ Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly under the Father's authority. He always did the Father's will. He never messed up. He never left anything undone. There was no sin in Him at all. And yet He willingly offered Himself as a substitute. Dying on a a Roman cross... As a substitute for sinners just like you and me. Just like you and me. And God the Father accepted his sacrifice. He was well pleased with it. Because on the third day he raised him from the dead to set him at his right hand and, and to give him all rule and authority. Jesus says, you're tired of 
you're tired of the rat race, if you're tired of the grind, if you're, if you're tired of the trying to be good enough to please God, then give up and come to me. Give up and come to me. Receive the pardon I have purchased by faith. question we have to ask ourselves, you need to ask yourself this morning is, are you tired enough? Are you tired enough? Have you reached the end of the ride? I pray to God that's true. Sovereignty is a doctrine to rejoice in, not recoil from. A person never comes to Jesus until they're tired of their own self-effort. And third principle, and we'll move through this here a little bit, but salvation includes discipleship. You can't have one without the other. Salvation includes discipleship. You cannot have one without the other. They are not separable. They are two sides of the same coin. Come to me, verse 28, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The yoke. It was a, it was a wooden beam placed across the neck of an animal. It had a couple of, of sticks that came down from it, either side of the animal's neck, and they tie it underneath. And they could hook a harness to it and, and it would distribute the weight across the shoulders of the animal and the animal would be able to pull with greater efficiency. The yoke. Well, it's a metaphor here. And it was a common metaphor there at that time. A, a common metaphor for the, for the discipline of discipleship. To become a disciple. To undergo the rigors and discipline of discipleship was to take on the yoke. To take on the yoke. The Pharisees had their yoke. Jesus has his. The difference is simply this. Their yoke is a burdensome yoke, an oppressive yoke. Jesus says, my yoke is light and easy. Light and easy. Their yoke is designed to transfer glory to themselves. Jesus' yoke, because He is gentle and humble, is designed to transfer all glory to His heavenly Father. It's important to remember, though, beloved, that Jesus, He's offering relief from this yoke. The yoke of self-effort. But He is not... He is not saying that there is a complete removal of all restraint. There is still a yoke. When you come to Jesus and you are transformed, you are, you are saved, you are redeemed, you become His disciple. It is not an optional second step. Save me and then later we'll talk about whether I want to be your disciple or not. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. The idea that God will save non-disciples is a a soul-damning heresy. You are either a disciple of Jesus Christ or you are headed for destruction in the lake of fire. There is no in-between. Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus' words, 
go into the, you know, all the world and make what? Disciples. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say go into the world and make converts. He says go into the world and make disciples. Disciples. Because that's all there is. That's all there is. What is Jesus' yoke? What is this gentle and easy yoke? It is to follow Him. It is to learn from Him. It is to come under His authority. It is to receive His instruction. As to the very meaning of the Scriptures. You remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. It is to submit to His goal for your life, to conduct your, yourself, the conduct of your life in accordance with His principles and precepts. It is a radical transformation of life. And it occurs in principle at the moment of redemption. And it is worked out, it grows in strength through the ups and downs of life. It's not perfect in us. But it is relentless. It is relentless. Jesus' yoke contains many, many commands and, and ethical imperatives, and they're found in the New Testament. We didn't, it's not like we, we throw off the law and now we live however we want. The New Testament contains many commands, many ethical imperatives. Many things that we, that we must do and things we must refrain from. The difference, though, is that now the Spirit of God resides within us and His law is written on our heart, not in tablets of stone external to us. We have within us both the power and the desire through the indwelling Spirit to live in obedience to Jesus. That's why it's easy. That's why it's light. He's changed our affections. All right, why do, you, why do you do what you do? Because you want to please Christ. I love Him. Don't do what I should all the time. To... My heart of hearts, I love Him. I want to obey Him. Notice in verse 29, see a little Old Testament citation there. The end of verse 29, you'll find rest for your souls. You see that? Jesus is quoting here uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Jeremiah 6, 16. And in that section of Jeremiah 16, God is, is appealing to His ancient people. The full verse, it goes like this. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and, and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is. And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. We will not walk in it. God's ancient people refused His rest. The question this morning is, will you refuse it or not? Come to me. Come to me. How will you choose? How will you choose? 
Let's pray. Our Father, the mystery of sovereignty is just that. It lies locked in your secret counsels, never to be revealed to us. Not now, and my Father, I find no indication that it will ever be revealed. And so it is a fool's errand to seek to go where we have not been invited and where we cannot go. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons. Our Father, you have revealed through your word a a wide open call to those who are weary, those who are worn out, those who are tired of faking it. Come to Jesus, receive his rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. My Father, I pray this morning for for those who are here who have yet to receive the gift of salvation. I pray, our Father, that today would be their day. Draw them to yourself that their eyes might be opened and their hearts inflamed with love for Christ. And for those of us, Father, among us who, who know Christ, but lately we have, we have sort of forgotten our first love. We've gotten caught up in the things of this world. We find our, our Christian life has become a, a set of do's and don'ts, a, a troublesome burden. Oh Lord, let us fall in love with Jesus again. Let us recognize that we are received perfectly through the perfect sacrifice of Christ, that your love for us is is not a performance-based love. It doesn't rise and fall with how good we do day to day, whether we read our Bible, whether we pray, whether we share our faith, whether we do anything. You're secure in your Son. Let that knowledge just fill our hearts and cause our love to grow and And we will begin to do the things we should and we will do them out of love. Oh, transform your people, our Father, for your name's sake. Now go in peace, my beloved. Take the message of peace with you today out into this community. Live as a Christian and tell others what Christ has done for you that God would receive the glory. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.